Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, I'd like to welcome Ashley Lipscomb. With 11 years experience as a forest activist, Ashley Lipscomb works with Kentucky Heartwood staff and citizens to protect globally significant species and forests within the uppermost part of the longest hardwood forested plateau in the world, located in Eastern Kentucky. Ashley, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. It's nice to be here today, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. And I really appreciate uh, the environmental journalism that you put into the world. It's very important. Thanks. Yeah. Right now, I don't know, as a podcast journalism, that's debatable. But uh, yeah, I've... <laughs> I think it's form of it. <laughs> close enough. Uh, I appreciate that. But let's start with location. Kentucky. I, I'm going to admit that even though I have been to the majority of states in the US, I don't think I've even passed through Kentucky. So I know very little about it. And I'm going to assume that a lot of our listeners are not familiar with certainly not the ecosystems. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about. So what's going on in Kentucky? What does a, a typical Kentucky forest look like? Is there such a thing? Tell us about that. So in Eastern Kentucky, our forests are mixed mesophytic deciduous forests. So we have anything from various oak trees to beech trees to hickories of all different kinds and um, any kind of uh, deciduous tree in between. So it's really um, the, the area that Kentucky Heartwood is primarily concerned with is the Daniel Boone National Forest. And it's really um, an interesting forest because um, it, it is more mountainous, which we consider mountainous, in, in the southern parts of the Daniel Boone National Forest. And as you move through the forest, it has some really interesting um, geological features uh, just intermixed with the forest, such as sandstone arches. Um, we actually um, are second to Utah in terms of how many arches we have. Um, uh, you know, in comparison. So there's some really awesome features that way. Uh, we have a lot of rock houses, rock arches, rock bridges, rock bridges, I should say, and um, waterfalls um, that are quite beautiful, especially after it rains. Um, so that's the forest, you know, on the surface. But then when you think about um, Kentucky, we actually have an incredible amount of caves and karst systems below the forest floor um, that are incredibly important for uh, Indiana bats, Northern long-eared bats. And um, so you have this interesting um, layer um, of Eastern Kentucky. And of course, um, Probably, you know, most of the media talks about coal country in eastern Kentucky and the impacts that that's had um, on the landscape. But um, we still have, you know, um, intact forests on our public lands, um, some really amazing interior forests. And we also have quite a few uh, rare threatened and endangered species. Um, including the Indiana bat that I was talking about briefly before, um, quite a few darter species, 
um, and uh, dace species, and also um, the beautiful white fringeless orchid, uh, among many other species. And some of these species are endemic to the area and are not found anywhere else in the world. So while in the media, you know, Eastern Kentucky is kind of painted as this socio, you know, economically depressed area. And in some ways it is. Um, we also, though, are incredibly uh, rich when it comes to um, life sources. And I use that term life sources, um, you know, in, um, as opposed to resources, because some of these species um, obviously are not renewable once they disappear. <laughs> so, um, so that's, that's a little bit uh, just about Eastern Kentucky. Um, it's incredibly unique and I think transcends a lot of what most of, you know, the United States thinks about what they know about Eastern Kentucky. So, sure. Well, that's really helpful to paint a picture of the landscape there. Is this in Appalachia? Do they consider this Appalachia, that area? It's definitely Appalachia. Um, some of it is the foothills, you know, but once you start um, getting down, uh, well, you know, once you start getting into uh, the Daniel Boone National Forest, you're absolutely in Appalachia. Cool. Okay, that's good to know. And are there any wilderness areas in the state or national forests or most of it? We do have two wilderness areas on the Daniel Boone National Forest. We have the Clifty Wilderness and we have the Beaver Creek Wilderness. Um, they're, um, you know, they're a lot smaller than wilderness areas that you would think of, you know, out west, for example. And a lot of them are very much what I would consider to be kind of front country wilderness areas where it's really easy access and there's not a lot of um, buffer buffer zones um, like you would see out west, but um, they're incredibly unique with some of the same features that we were talking about, you know, waterfalls, rock houses with, you know, um, artifacts um, from, you know, some previous inhabitants. Um, and of course, um, there are, you know, wonderful areas for, um, you know, bat species. And of course, um, hopefully a place where you can find solitude, although that's a little bit more challenging with the influx of visitors, <laughs> you know, uh, in the past in the past few years. So, so we do have wilderness areas. We do have some research natural areas um, that, you know, um, provide great protection for um, hemlock species, um, for species that, um, you know, are part of like the bryophytic community. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a couple of different uh, levels of protection in there. Um, so yeah. But then, of course, across Kentucky, you have other places like national parks, like um, Mammoth Cave and different places like that. And there is a little bit of forest land um, over in western Kentucky, uh, which is called the land between the lakes. So, Excellent. Yeah. That's really helpful to know. Yeah, I wasn't really aware of that. I guess I had heard of Mammoth Caves and I heard of the Daniel Boone National Forest. I'm a bit familiar with what Hartwood's been doing, but I, it's not really been on my radar that much. So these forests are there. That's excellent. 
we know that coal mining is a threat to the landscape, but what else is a threat to the forested landscape? So there's a couple of different things that uh, I wanted to talk about tonight in terms of uh, land management plans and some amendments that or an amendment that the Forest Service would like to make to their forest plan that could potentially impact um, federally endangered Indiana bats. But we're also dealing with um, an influx of integrated resource management strategies, which are basically uh, large landscape assessments that the Forest Service um, conducts as environmental assessments. And essentially, um, they're looking at the condition of the forest and thinking to what their desired future conditions are um, in their forest plan. But what these um, land assessments turn into is generally more site specific um, timber sales with little um, environmental analysis uh, beyond the EA that they conducted in the big management strategy um, processes. And then, um, and there's also um, some interesting, um, let's see, how shall I say, um, actors uh, in Eastern Kentucky that are looking to um, turn uh, mature forest into early seral habitat for, for their, you know, elk or rough grouse um, hunting interests, basically, if you will. So, I thought first that we could maybe start to talk about just that that amendment because that could um, really direct how and when the Forest Service could log on the Daniel Boo National Forest. And just as a little bit of a backstory, um, Kentucky Heartwood was really instrumental in. Um, stopping logging completely on the Daniel Boone National Forest in the late 90s because we basically had lawless logging on the Daniel Boone and they were in violation of their forest plan and several other, you know, so, several other, um, you know, laws. And so it came to basically a complete halt until uh, the forest plan was amended in 2004. And um, so the Daniel Boone National Forest has really, up to this point, only been able to log about a thousand acres a year on the Daniel Boone. And now with uh, their proposed forest plan amendment, they're seeking to log more. So basically we call it the bat amendment <laughs> to the forest plan, but the forest service kind of packaged it in a way so that it didn't look like they were gutting standards um, that essentially protected Indiana bats and other species. So the goal was to weaken protections for Indiana bats to increase logging on the Daniel Boone National Forest. So basically uh, the Forest Service is um, restricted to logging in during certain times of the year that are a little bit wetter. So they proposed an amendment 
to allow them to log during the summer, during drier parts uh, of the year, because it's much easier to log them. And essentially uh, they would um, have less, a little bit less impact supposedly on the landscape. But if you look at the forest plan, um, there are standards in there that protect summer roosting habitat for Indiana bats. They rely on interior forest for rearing their pups. And so in the wintertime, of course, they're in their cave. Uh, in late spring, summer, early fall, they migrate to these interior forests and basically uh, nestle up under loose bark of mature trees and, um, you know, get their pups to the point where they can fly and, you know, uh, be their independent bat selves, you know. So, um, but the Forest Service, obviously, like I said, wants to log during the summertime. So they are trying to amend the plan um, to allow for logging um, during, during the summer. And this could have really detrimental impacts to these federally uh, endangered species between 2011 and 2017, the Indiana bat population has decreased by 18%. And so, of course, you know, that's due to human impacts and white nose syndrome. But um, if the Forest Service um, is allowed to log in summer habitat, these bats have a greater chance of um, declining even further. So um, right now, uh, the Forest Service um, is planning to release their decision November 2021. And of course, that will open up an objection process um, where we'll submit comments um, why, you know, uh, we should protect these interior forests uh, for bats. And um, and so we'll see where that goes. Interestingly enough, I just learned that there is a bat amendment down in Arkansas on the Ozark St. Francis uh, National Forest. So clearly this is uh, a trend in region eight. And um, so we'll hopefully be able to, um, you know, protect those species and protect those forests. So that's kind of the overarching amendment that's kind of hanging in the balance right now that, you know, we'd love to have people, um, you know, comment on, you know, follow, because it's, you know, while Western forests have, you know, really charismatic mammals like grizzly bear and bison, we have our flying mammal and, you know, we'd love to, to protect those species. So um, that because there is the stigma of the bat, just because people are whatever inherently, you know, um, I, I think a lot of people just get creeped out by them. I, I don't, I don't because I know their ecological role. But do you think that that is an obstacle? The fact that people don't really understand how valuable the bat is and because they have all these prejudices against the bat? You know, I, I haven't really heard, you know, that much about prejudice against the bats. If anything, bat habitat is, you know, being severely impacted because of 
human curiosity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here, they are really protective about, uh, you know, trying not to give away information about where um, hibernacula are, um, you know, where roosting um, habitats are, um, because we have such an impact. So I almost think that humans aren't necessarily scared of them. I think they're actually more curious about getting into their cave systems and Mm -hmm. exploring, (laughs) which is detrimental to them. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there are probably some people out there, of course, that are more into the cuddlier animals, although I suppose you could cuddle with a bat if you want to. But you're saying that it's also there are a lot of folks that are just curious. They want to check out their habitat. And so hibernacula, that's where they hibernate, I assume. Yeah, that's that's the cave system, you know, that they yeah, that they winter in. And it sounds like Dracula, too. It's a pretty cool and word. It does. I'm a horror Hanging upside down. I'm a horror huh? writer, so I'm probably going to use that word hibernacula. That's like a perfect title. Anyway, hibernacula, hibernaculum. There's a couple different, you know, uh, iterations of the word. So yeah, check it out. So yeah, bats are of course very, very ecologically valuable. I mean, they they have a right to exist even if they didn't help <laughs> other things, but they eat. They eat a lot of insects, right? So they reduce certain insect populations. Their guano is is fertilizing. Uh, I mean, for us, it's really about that, you know, um, bats, you know, deserve <laughs> to exist, right? And clearly they've been, uh, Indiana bats, for example, have been on the endangered species list for decades mm-hmm. and uh, they've, they're still not recovered and they're not going to be recovered for a really long time given some of these goals that, you know, that the Forest Service has. Sure. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been pretty critical of this forest plan amendment. And I know that the Forest Service is seeking a permit um, from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is probably a take permit so they can, mm-hmm. you know, log, you know, more interior forests. But um but I think it'd be really interesting to learn a little bit more about some of the uh, some of the other ways that bats uh, benefit benefit the forest. Sure. So they're struggling with the white nose disease. My understanding is that's at least been getting a little bit better. I think it's still obviously a major problem for them. But I think there's been some positive news in terms of it's it's not a it's not getting tremendously worse, but it's still killing off a lot of bats. Do you know if that's true or not? Well, there's still a lot of, there's a lot of education, I think, surrounding it more. But I was um, looking at some statistics about um, Indiana bat populations in the, um, it's called the Salt Peter Cave, for example, and those those populations are still declining um, by huge amounts. So yeah. I don't think it's a problem that's necessarily going away anytime soon. I mean, we're mm-hmm. we're you know we're still just seeing declines, like precipitous declines. So mm-hmm. um, I feel still think it's something that people should be vigilant about, oh, yeah. and you know 
stay out of those cave systems, no matter how enticing they are. Yeah, well, a common thread that keeps coming up in the Green Root podcast is not something that you would expect. It's that recreation is harmful to nature. And it's not saying, yeah, don't hike or anything like that, but it's being aware that there are certain activities that you probably shouldn't do. And that for sure, if there are certain areas you might not want to be, certainly not at certain times, and that with enough of population, yeah, it has a real impact. And that's something that we need to discuss. I know I hear a lot of people saying like, oh, now they want to bring their snow bikes out. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that either, but but who cares? It's not really that, it's not compared to a bulldozer, but you get enough of this. You get enough of the encroachment. You get enough humans in the forest. And yeah, it does have its impact. And this one has a direct where you're crawling around caves. That's a cool thing to do. But then you're bringing in all sorts of foreign bodies. And that is my understanding of how the disease spreads. So yeah, it's like, you want people to be engaged in the natural world so they actually care about it. And it's pretty impossible to just never visit nature and really care about it. So on that one hand, we want people to go out there. On the other hand, it's like, well, maybe not too much. So how do we, how do we deal with that just concept in general? Do we just, we, we make sure people understand where it's not okay? Well, it's interesting that you bring up recreation because uh, the Daniel Boo National Forest is actually is having a real problem with the impacts of recreation, whether it's in the Red River Gorge geological area, um, whether it's, um, you know, um, ATV use, you know, uh, which is a real problem out here, especially on the kind of, you know, more on the southern southern part of the Daniel Boone National Forest. But so it's been a real issue. And, and the Forest Service actually right now is going through a, a planning process where they're going to have to figure out how are we dealing with an influx of a huge amount of people that they uh, that's been encroaching on a problem for quite a few years, even before COVID. Um, started and people were looking for outlets. Um, but, you know, they're, they're seeing, um, well, for example, I, I just moved here. And so somebody wanted to show me a, a waterfall on the Daniel Boone National Forest. And when I got out there, I realized, whoa, this is an unofficial trail. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of creek crossings. And when you got to the waterfall, there was um, tons of trees hacked, um, rhododendrons cut, <laughs> I mean, and the bryophytic communities that probably once surrounded those waterfall areas, um, are completely gone. And there's, you know, fire pit scars everywhere. Um, and, and then also you have people creating, you know, unofficial campsites up above this, um, really beautiful waterfall. And where did people get the idea that this was, <laughs> this was okay. And this, you know, this was a good use. And what we're finding is that um, a lot of people are actually getting their information for trails and such or unofficial trails from um, either social media or websites like All Trails, where people are, it's an open source platform 
it's, you know, people are suggesting where to go hiking. Um, of course, there's a moderator on the other side, you know, of all trails, but that moderator may not know anything about the issues plaguing the Red River Gorge geological area. So they'll approve it. And then people will get on and say, oh, okay, a place that I can go hiking. And so it's perpetuating uh, really bad information. And now, I mean, I've, I've read on all trails that um, trail, trail managers, um, you know, forest managers can go to all trails and say, Hey, this is actually closed. <laughs> it's not an official trail and try to try to keep people, you know, out of those areas. But, um, recreation, um, definitely has its impacts. And I know some people like to use the term recreation, W-R-E-C-K, <laughs> you know, recreation, recreation in that way. And it really is, um, if people don't know what they're seeing or they don't know what's missing from those ecological communities, it's a lot harder for them to, um, you know, just, just be aware of, how these these you know these systems have changed just by our our very presence mm -hmm. and so um it's definitely something that the forest service is having to deal with um and i always try to um spread the mesh message of recreation with restraint um it does have its impacts um it may look different than say logging Right. or, you know, other extractive um, activities, but it still has its own level of extraction if, you know, species are disappearing from some, from certain places, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah. a tough one. And here in the East where there's a lot of recreation, a lot of people, it's actually, I feel like a much more acute impact Mm -hmm. um in some ways um but right yeah it seems like it's a combination of just the number of people the sheer number of people who want to get out there and maybe some people who don't have the knowledge of what they're doing the harm and then there are probably a fair amount of people who just don't care it's just like whatever this is my playground i'll do what i want and talking of folks who don't really care about their impact. What is going on with the, the bullet groups? So the Ruffed Grouse Society, the um, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in regard to the early cereal habitat, maybe explain what early cereal habitat is. So early cereal habitat are young forests that are usually 10 years in age or younger, and they're mostly characterized by grasses, uh, forbs, brush, things like that. Um, you know, kind of ecosystems that maybe elk or rough grouse would, would like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but certainly don't um, need, you know, um, as a standalone habitat to exist, you know, um, you know, elk can also be a part of forest habitats, um, just as well as, uh, you know, roughed grouse. 
But what we're seeing with some of these big landscape assessments that are happening on the Daniel Boone National Forest is groups like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the Rough Grouse Society submitting public comments, um, supporting agency actions to create more early seral habitat by logging mature forests and, um, and you know, converting them to basically hunting reserves <laughs> for their, their interests. And of course, you know, they wanna preserve their hunting ways, but they also frame it as, you know, um, promoting um, conservation efforts. And so particularly with one uh, project like the South Redbird Wildlife Enhancement Project, um, we were going through the, the project documents and noticing that, you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was supporting, um, you know, mechanical treatments and uh, prescribed burning um, to, to promote this early sterile habitat. And then with the Ruffed Grouse Society, uh, we were seeing that they were pushing for um, 20 to 25% of um, young forest conditions um, in this one, um, you know, um, land assessment area, which is an, an incredible amount of early seral habitat that actually violates forest plan standards. It actually exceeds, um, you know, the forest services um, um, desired future condition. Um, so we're, we're seeing them starting to, you know, submit more public comments that could be the case with some with some of these other um, integrated resource management strategies that are happening um, down in the Jellicoe mountain area and the southern part of the forest. Um, that could also be the case for the Blackwater land assessment that's up on the Cumberland district near Cave Run Lake. Um, where they're also um, promoting uh, early seral habitat up there. But it's really just um, a scary amount of conversion of our mature forest to, to young forests. And so we are, you know, actively, um, you know, um, trying to encourage the Forest Service to think about, you know, where does early seral habitat um, exist, you know, outside of the, the forest boundary? And is that a place where early seral habitat, you know, can continue to exist and, you know, instead of um, logging our mature forests? So it's, and we're also, you know, potentially, this is, this is a potential um, the Forest Service is really promoting um, stewardship agreements uh, across the forest. And we think that we're gonna probably start seeing more of this as these integrated restoration management strategies get approved and move forward. And what happens is, is the, the Forest Service, um, you know, does their assessment. They um, award the contract to nonprofits such as the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, so far the Rough Grass Society or the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I don't think have pursued stewardship agreements um, 
right now on the Daniel Boone National Forest, but these groups basically um, are the contractors for the timber sale. They sell the timber, get the timber receipts, the money, and then put it back into um, conservation efforts where they, um, you know, contracted the logging. And so, um, and in order to learn about units where this is happening, the um, accounting for these contracts, all of those things, um, basically um, we're gonna have to FOIA the, the federal government because they don't um, want to, they, they don't feel that they uh, should give information to the general public because it's a contract between a private entity and the forest service. So um, we've seen this down um, down south in Region Eight happening, and we're expecting that's go it's going to become um, the norm up here on the Daniel Boone National Forest. So it's definitely something that we've got our eyes on, and are looking for ways to to keep track of it. But it's interesting, you know. <laughs> Rocky Mountain elk were introduced um, into Kentucky, and the whole goal was to actually introduce them into Western Kentucky. But because there's so much private land in Western Kentucky, uh, a lot of landowners didn't want big, heavy ungulates, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, walking around on their private land and trampling things. So. Uh, they instead decided that they were going to introduce elk into eastern Kentucky and um, put them on old coal mining, uh, you know, old coal mining landscapes that they were trying to remediate. And so they thought that elk would persist there pretty well. And that was originally the intent of introducing uh, Rocky Mountain elk, but now we're seeing that you know, these groups would like to see, um, again, forests turned into early seral habitats so that elk can move, you know, um, more, <laughs> you know, and, and be in some of these spots where they'd like to have some, you know, more or less hunting reserves. So it's definitely something that we're watching. I thought that I had left the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation behind in the Western United States, but it turns out that they have their their hands in, in a lot of national forests. So, have elk historically lived in Kentucky? There was an eastern elk um, that was uh, that went extinct in the 1880s. Um, and in the, from what I understand, the, um, the state of Kentucky was very involved in trying to, you know, reestablish, reintroduce populations of different species that had, you know, disappeared. And so, um, you know, so you have, um, animals like you know, elk that they're trying to, well, that they have reintroduced and are actually persisting pretty well because they have no natural predators except for us, <laughs> you know? So, um, so yeah. it's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. I think it's an important discussion to have because of course it's, it's very easy to demonize hunting. Personally, I'm not a hunter, but I used to have issues like, oh, it's wrong. I think trophy hunting is wrong, but you know, you're hunting for food or something like that. 
the reality is, of course, not everyone can. If everyone decides that they're going to feed their family with deer in America, we will not have any deer next year. So it's not really a solution for everyone. But if some people are doing that, big deal. But it's not just that. So what happens is the industries behind it and the agencies behind it, they end up changing the whole landscape. Like they want to inflate the populations, not because they care about the subsistence of that particular species, but because they want to have enough so people can come in to shoot it. And why do they want that? Because people pay money to do that, which goes into the state wildlife and conservation organizations. And they're the ones who are like, hey, don't you want to do conservation? We need money. And it's like, well, you're kind of like getting money from people who are causing environmental problems. And then you're saying that you're coming to the rescue by fixing it with the money. So my question, and you don't have to answer this, this is more rhetorical. Are these, these agencies, are they doing more harm than good, basically? If the way that they fill their coffers is by encouraging this sort of, uh, you know, overstocking of certain creatures on the landscape and then demanding that the landscape be changed for them. And then they do little good things here and there, because for sure, a lot of these wildlife agencies and, and state agencies do some good stuff. But again, their money comes from almost this rotten source. And then they're doing all this other crappy stuff. And one example on, on my rant that I'll, I'll give is that out here in Colorado, they're very concerned about chronic wasting disease in deer and elk and moose, as I am. And I've had folks on from the uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and he's a biologist there. So his job is just to do the science. So he's, my opinion, he's cool. And he has a study that came out that show mountain lions can actually pick out chronic wasting deer disease early on. So in a sense, remove them and lessen the amount of contagion is what his study and other studies have sort of surmised. So Fish and Wildlife is putting out, look at this study, look, and then on the other hand, we're actually going out there and we're going to be shooting a bunch of mountain lions because there's too many mountain lions right now. And it's like, wait a second, which is it? You know, so it's like they're both doing good things and bad things. So my personal opinion is like, just get rid of these agencies altogether and just see what happens. Because uh, I, I would, my opinion, which is not everyone's, it's very few people's is, is nature kind of knows what it's doing and we are meddling. We can be stewards, not in the sense of the stewardship contracts that you were talking about, but we, we can be stewards. We tend not to be. So that was my rant. You don't need to respond. But one final point about that though is, so for those who might be involved with hunting, no one is, is saying that is morally wrong or anything like that, but be aware what you're feeding into. Be aware that you are, encouraging, for instance, in Kentucky, that they're going to cut forests down to make habitat for these creatures just so they have more of them so more people can shoot them. So I'm done with my rant. <laughs> it's definitely and it's definitely rooted in tourism. I mean, there's, you know, um, obviously, you know, people, you know, um, hunting does bring in a certain amount of dollar, you know, and, um, but it also is um, a tourism thing, you know, people can hop in terms of Western Kentucky, people can hop in their car and drive through the elk and bison prairie that's out there between the land between the lakes and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's tourism dollars and, you know, uh, something for, for people to see. But, you know, in, in this instance, it's not, um, you know, necessarily um, 
demonizing the hunting like we were talking about it's more about how much early seral habitat is actually out there and it may not necessarily be uh, on federal lands on the Daniel Boone National Forest but it could be very near nearby and and serve um, the purpose or if there are clear cuts um, maybe they can be managed differently so they can be you know early seral habitat for you know, um, you know, these species. Um, but it's definitely, um, it's definitely a, a challenging issue. And it's, and it's kind of an emerging one. Um, so we'll definitely be following it. But yeah, I appreciate your your thoughts and your comments about that. Well, Hartwood has long been involved with what I would call the more legitimate end of environmental organizationing. <laughs> so there, there's a lot, and we talk about it on the Green Root podcast, there are a lot of environmental organizations that are really not interested in going to the heart of a lot of issues. They're really kind of want to dabble around the edges. But I know that that Heartwood has been a part of, I guess what some people would call yeah, the end public logging movement you know, realizing, of course, we, we need to fight these timber sale by timber sale. And I know right now, maybe they're not specifically engaging, there's no national campaign to end public lands logging. Uh, however, in my mind, I've, I've lived in Oregon, I've lived in Vermont, living in Colorado, from New York, I've seen the same issues coming up over and over again. And then there's like all these detailed minutia that every time I'm like, well, maybe I'm just stupid. And I simplify everything. I'm just like, why the hell don't we just all come together and be like, guess what? If it's public lands, you don't get to do that stuff anymore. It, it would sure save, it, it would put a lot of attorneys out of business, I suppose, but it would sure save a lot of like, okay, I have to make this argument regarding the bat. It's a valid argument. Of course it's important. Well, guess what? It's already public land. So tough shit. You don't get to kill our bats. So that simplistic concept. Do you have any comments on the, 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 the idea of should we be putting public lands off limits to extraction or not? So, I mean, there's uh, definitely, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've had some discussions with folks who feel that maybe I'm too, a little bit too idealistic about, you know, um, you know, just uh, having a non-management um, kind of, you know, angle. Um, and it's definitely, you know, it's, it's a hard topic to talk about because it really kind of challenges, you know, how you, you know, think and perceive, um, you know, perceive management. Um, but the reality is that, um, there's a lot of private land, um, around the Daniel Boone National Forest. There's also, um, you know, large, you know, timber corporations like the Forest Land Group who are also, you know, um, you know, obviously exist to log their land according to best management practices with the state of Kentucky, which are, you know, pretty weak. Um, but, and, and certainly can um, do some damage. But given the amount of private forest lands, um, is there really actually 
a need to log the Daniel Boone National Forest heavily. Um, and of course, you know, Kentucky Heartwood, given um, the climate that we're working within, it would probably be very challenging for us to even promote no, you know, zero cuts like we were able to do um, back in the 90s. Um, but there's certainly, um, you know, it is important to, to highlight um, just how much logging actually happens on private land and do we actually need to be promoting that, you know, um, on federal federal land right now. Right. Obviously, um, you know, um, we don't necessarily, you know, want to see um, commercial logging in some areas. Um, and in other areas, it's really challenging to even stop that. I haven't seen, you know, any um, other organizations promoting um, zero cut in the East. Um, that doesn't mean that maybe it won't happen. But certainly we're hoping that um, some of this proposed logging will um, slow down um, if you know, we can um, prevail in the courts in terms of you know, the National Environmental Policy Act um, um, and you know, all of those changes that were proposed, um, if the Southern Environmental Law Center can prevail, you know, with their, um, you know, with their clients that hopefully it will um, slow down and hopefully, um, you know, bring the public public back into the, um, the planning process and rely again upon science to make those decisions and just slow down, you know, the development that could potentially be happen happening across forests like the Daniel Boone National Forest. So I think that's where um, a lot of folks are hanging their hat right now. Um, but certainly it helps that the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration is, you know, asking executive offices and agencies to review um, those sweeping changes uh, to NEPA. And hopefully that will kind of slow, slow the agency's role um, and, you know, get back to looking at the cumulative impacts that, you know, um, logging, logging has on the national forest. And um, so that's where I see it at. Um, I haven't seen a zero cut push, um, but, but I also feel that there's, some good things that are happening in terms of lawsuits and, you know, um, you know, the administration, you know, looking at things from a, a, a climate change lens and, um, and looking at some of those, you know, regulation overhauls that, you know, were really detrimental to the national forests. So, or could be. Yeah, well, I think Hartwood's doing some great work, and I think it's we have to be doing these timber sale by timber sale right now in national forest by national forest. I think that's just essential. There's no way around it. However, I do also believe that there needs to be a more comprehensive push so 
everyone isn't constantly scrambling in all each of these different areas. And I think it's a it's pretty much a no brainer. The idea that some of the most ecologically valuable land, well, the most ecologically valuable land left in the country is on public lands. Like you said, there's hardly any real commercial. Uh, let's put it this way. There, there is too much <laughs> commercial extraction. It's too much extraction on the public lands. But in terms of what it actually contributes to the economy and how many jobs are dependent on it, it's pretty minimal. It's it's pretty minimal. It's not non-existent, but it's it's quite minimal. And instead, the idea would be like, okay, well, corporate timberlands they actually, they hate the jobs, right? They want to find the most mechanistic way that they can just lop down all their trees with as little cost as possible. They're the ones who are killing the jobs. So the idea would be actually, okay, what would a genuinely sustainable timber industry look like on private lands? That would be the way forward. That's a, that's a, in my mind, I see both a combination of a legitimate sustainable timber industry on private lands, and then a push to end public lands logging. I know that's pie in the sky. And uh, I mean, groups have, I used to work for a group that was working on that Native Forest Council years ago, but it's not a popular, well, let's put it this way. Pretty much almost everyone who works on national forest issues would privately think, sure, let's do it. Just the idea of, well, how would that actually happen? And right, that's, it's a, it's quite a, a vision, but I don't think it's impossible. And then, of course, it gets more complicated because I've had people say, well, so you want to protect public lands, but do do they get to have the right to do whatever they want to private lands? It's like, well, that's a valuable discussion as well. And we see out in Oregon where they're just spraying herbicides from helicopters on private lands and that drifts onto people's property and gets into the watershed and who owns the salmon, you know, so yeah, ultimately, we would all be doing the right thing. These timber companies would almost voluntarily leave certain areas alone and be doing things more sustainably. Well, there's no more sustainably. There's either sustainable or not sustainable. So they'd actually be doing the right job. But yeah, there, there's no real incentive to do that. And if you're a small timber company that wants to do the right thing, you're going to compete with a timber company that's going to sell their logs for a lot cheaper and no one wants to pay more for their products. So yeah, not to be all pessimistic about it, because uh, I think that we are doing some great work. And Kentucky Heartwood has definitely uh, been one of my my favorite groups that have, I've been on my radar for many years, even if I haven't directly interacted a lot of times. I mean, I I know Jim Chef and, and other folks like that. Yeah. But it's like at a certain point of time, we might all have to circle our wagons and realize we, we've got to come together uh, on a comprehensive plan because they're, they're coming at us from every angle. And sure, I'd like to think that the Biden administration is going to do some great things. I, I, I'm sure they'll do less bad things than Trump, but is that enough? You know, so is Obama part two really enough? Uh, I spent a lot of my activist career working on forest issues during Obama and his administration was one of the biggest pushes for cutting trees for biomass energy, one of the greatest threats we have to our forests. So yeah, I'll, I will be the first to say Democrats are definitely less harmful to the forest than Republicans. But the problem is that most environmental groups are going to throw down anytime a Republican or Trump wants to do something. You see a Democratic uh, administration do literally the same thing. So whether it's open up the Tongass or do Arctic stuff or 
front down the line. I mean, I, I followed all the Trump stuff and people were like, look what Trump is doing. I'm like, yeah, that's terrible. Look when Obama tried that too. So I, I'm not trying to be a dick, but it's like, <laughs> we have to do all yeah. of the above. We have to be like, good, thank you, Biden administration for incrementally moving this forward. And this is better, but then we got to have that long game of, we're actually want to get you all off of public lands eventually. And uh, I think we can at the same time be pleasant and civil with loggers. I don't hate loggers. I don't hate hunters. I'd shake their hand. I'd talk about, you know, being out in the woods with them and be like, yeah, well, our ultimate goal is to get you off the land. Sorry. You know, I, I don't have a problem with doing both. And I, I find like, we, yeah, we tend to demonize individuals. I think a lot of their activity is harmful, but I don't, I don't think the people themselves are bad people. So maybe if we start distinguishing that we can actually decide where we want to hold that line. But anyway, that's, that's, I, I'm more of that big picture guy, but I acknowledge it's so important that there are people on the landscape making these legal arguments to protect things right now. Cause if it was just like folks like me, Oh, we need to do all this eventually. Well, then there would be nothing left eventually. So, so all of this needs to happen. And yeah, I, I want to make it clear that I do very much appreciate all the work that that Hartwood is doing. Yeah, and I mean, Kentucky Heartwood, you know, had an initiative uh, called, you know, Cumberland Ecoforestry, where, you know, they were trying to, you know, implement um, different ways um, of, you know, managing private, private lands through kind of, I'll say low tech, <laughs> low tech means. Um, and um, so I, I'm not saying that like sacrifice, you know, the private lands, <laughs> you know, to save, uh, you know, the national forest, because um, it's all, if you look at the Daniel Boone National Forest, I mean, the private land is so enmeshed with the federal land, you know, just, just, given the history of the Daniel Boone National Forest. Um, but it's certainly, I mean, now is the time to, you know, um, put a bug in, you know, in the, in the agency's ear, um, put a bug in um, the, these executive offices like the CEQ and, um, you know, and just let them know about what is happening, what is being proposed on the Daniel Boone National Forest and how can we, um, you know, um, how can we protect, you know, globally significant places, you know, and um, like I said, I mean, I don't think that commercial logging or even, you know, non-commercial thinning and all those things are, you know, going to um, disappear. And in some ways, you know, people feel that um, non-commercial thinning actually serves a purpose given um, how much, <laughs> how much our forests are changing and being also converted into red maple and tulip poplar, <laughs> you know, um, tulip poplar forests. Um, so it's definitely, it's, it's one of those things where people are looking at it on a site by site, um, at a site by site level. 
and there's lots of different philosophies out there. Um, but the, the least that Kentucky Heartwood can promote is, um, you know, protecting, protecting those mature forests from converting them again to, you know, just these early sterile habitat um, areas. I mean, that's, that's really what we're, we're working on right now. That's yeah. the big need and purpose that the Forest Service is putting out there. And that's where we are putting um, most of our energy. And yeah, and that's super important. And I think while at the same time it is we shouldn't be demonizing people who are in the timber industry, we have to realize that these uh, industries and then the agencies that they collaborate with are coming for the most ecologically sensitive forests in a lot of cases. So they're they're really not, we're not on the same page as them for the most part. There, there are certainly a lot of good folks even in these agencies. And I think even lots of people work for timber industry appreciate the forest a lot of them live in rural areas but um they're they're really off base for a lot of stuff and i think that needs to be made clear and we until they i guess develop that conscience or that ability to have to to maybe uh realize that the profit motive isn't everything yeah we're gonna have to be fighting them and there's always going to be that conflict and until maybe some other alternative is created. But yeah, it's like, no one wants to fight these wars. I, I, I think, but they, they keep bringing them to the forest and yeah, we're gonna keep doing what we can to push them out. And uh, that's, that's basically where we're at. There's, there's no two ways about it. So uh, that we've got the little bit that's left you know, if we started from scratch in this country and we're like, okay, here's the whole frontier wide open. Uh, here, you can get this area timber company, but they already, it's it's too much. They've, they've taken too much. And, you know, we've taken too much because we're the ones who use the timber products a lot of the time. Well, I mean, all only humans are using it in that regard. So we, we have to accept our responsibility and see a way of how do we stop feeding into these things? So, you know, being aware of our usage, I think that's feeding a timber company. Of course, we can say, well, let's prevent these timber companies. But guess what? They're selling people products that they're demanding. And then they have the option of the more expensive wood and people don't buy it. And that's because people are suffering financially. So we have all of these deep root issues that we really need to address. But in the meantime, yeah, we got to keep them the hell out of the forest as best we can. And if it, um, you know, sorry, timber industry, if you're listening to this, but um, the horse and buggy industry had to go, right? Like if, you, if you're like, I'm sorry, you, you work in horse and buggies. Um, guess what, dude? Uh, we, that's not what people are using anymore. So uh, I feel bad for loggers. We should probably just buy them out, you know, just like, here we go, early retirement or uh, whatever, because we do have to be aware of the livelihoods of the individuals, but um, what we can't do is just maintain the status quo. And uh, I, I think Hartwood is doing a great job, you know, walking that line. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a tough conversation to have, you know, in Eastern Kentucky, like we said, a place that is really, you know, um, economically depressed and is, is historically just wrangled with that issue of how do we bring meaningful jobs, um, you know, to the region that, you know, aren't, <clears throat> you know, 
uh, extractive. Like, how do we, how do we change that? And it's, and it's really, it's really a challenging issue. And I don't think there has been a good answer to that yet, but, um, you know, I was out on the Redbird district a couple weeks ago, um, you know, hiking around, looking at some proposed, um, logging areas and, um, it's, you know, the forest service wants to claim that they're going to create, you know, jobs for these, you know, create jobs for this, this region, but it's, it's absolutely, you know, not, not happening in that way. And so I don't, you know, think that is exactly the answer either, but it's uh, definitely, definitely an issue that still, you know, needs to be uh, wrangled with and addressed. Um, it does. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. definitely a tricky thing and, and it's, uh, not necessarily black and white, but I do think, yeah, there's a line to draw at a certain point and yeah, the, we might have to do that, but yeah, it's, it's really difficult because people are struggling and, and that's very real. So, but the question is, is it environmentalist jobs to figure out the jobs for other people? I, I don't know if that's necessarily mm. our job but somebody should be doing that and we should be interfacing with those people because that that is a very real thing while also realizing when industry when they're they're exaggerating so yeah how many people would be put out of work tomorrow if we ended all public lands extraction the number is probably pretty minimal and the bailouts we could probably do for them i think would be far far less of an economic expenditure than just allowing the constant degrading of our landscapes but let's wrap it up now uh yeah, yeah. i appreciate everything that you're doing i appreciate you taking the time to come on the green root podcast so thank you so much ashley yeah nice to meet you josh and thanks for your thoughtful questions today absolutely well, and if you want to learn more about kentucky heartwood uh www.kyheartwood.org uh, you can sign up for eBlast and learn about some of the issues that we're working on, ways that you can be engaged in protecting public lands uh, in eastern Kentucky, um, you know, therefore all of us. And so please be engaged wherever you live. And, um, and so, yeah, so learn more about us there. So appreciate your time today. Thanks, Josh. For sure. And yeah, we'll have the link in the description. And Folks who listen to the podcast know that I shit on a lot of environmental organizations. I actually endorse this one. So sign up for it. This, this is it's pretty rare when I actually endorse an environmental organization. But yeah, definitely sign up for this one. Keep, keep track of what these folks are doing. They've been doing some great stuff for a long time. And even if you never even plan to go in Kentucky, I don't know if I'll ever be in Kentucky, but I still think it's really important what they're doing. So uh, thank you. And, and they're creating a model for what other entities can be doing and should be doing. So thanks again, Ashley. Cheers. Thank you.